Well, good morning. It is nice to see all of you this morning. Thank you. Uh, if you would, open your Bibles and join me in Acts chapter 2 as we continue our series called Ecclesia, Features of a Faithful Church. While you're turning there, I do have uh, some news for us. Our sister and member of this church, Doris Martini, went to be with the Lord yesterday morning around 4 a.m. And so you can keep Gary and Nancy Milton in uh, your prayers, Doris uh, it was Nancy's mom and the children and, and grandchildren. Uh, they are grieving her loss, but they are also rejoicing that Doris is hearing, well done, good and faithful servant uh, from the face of her loving master, Jesus Christ. So, um, so we're thankful for Doris's life. And um, as Doris loved, the preaching of the word. And so we're in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, in this series that we are in, Features of the Faithful Church, Ecclesia, we are doing a doctrinal series of lifting from the text of Scripture those texts that show us the mind of Christ, of why Jesus invented the church. It's not our own invention, but it's something that Jesus invented. We are his body, we are his bride, we are his temple, and more. And Jesus has expectations of what it means for us to be us. And this series is coming to a close very soon. In fact, there's only one more message in it. As I said, there's a whole lot to say. We're not saying all there is to say, but we're saying some important things. And one of our aims has been to be a true church, which means that we have the gospel, we do, but to also be a healthy church or a faithful church. And that means that we together as a church family both know and wisely apply what the Word of God says regarding our life together. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the subtitle of the message is Living Life Devoted Together in Christ. Living Life Devoted Together in Christ. We're going to look at Acts 2, 42 to 47. I'm going to go ahead and read that now to set God's Word before us, and then we'll look to Him together in prayer. Beginning in Acts 2, Verse 42, and they, that is the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, we come before you first, thankful for the life of Doris, and thankful, Lord, that you have brought her safely home into your arms. And so we pray for the Miltons and the extended family to um, not grieve as those who have no hope, but to grieve well in Christ as they look forward to that reunion with their mother. And Lord, for us, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray for your grace 
and your spirit to knit us together further and deeper into Jesus Christ as adopted sons and daughters of you, Father. We pray that you would work your word and will in and through us so that the light of the gospel might be all the more evident and shine all the more powerfully and distantly from us as a local family. We pray that not only for ourselves, but other gospel churches in town. Lord, that you would unite us to be emblems and displays of your grace and glory, trophies in your hand, trophies of redemption, trophies of your grace and forgiveness poured out upon us. And so now, Lord, would you please let us see what it is to live lives devoted together in Jesus. So to that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. The gospel. What happens in the heart of a person who sees their sin to be sin and repents of that sin? What happens in the heart of a person who trusts Christ and Jesus' death on the cross for their sins? What happens in the heart of a person who sees that Jesus is Lord and has risen from the grave victoriously and valiantly? What happens in the heart of a person when that person knows that their sins, because of the blood of Jesus, have been washed away forever, finally, in full, past, present, and future? What happens in the heart of a person when they know that their guilt, their shame, and their condemnation before God the Father have been removed by him because of his Son? What happens in the heart of a person when they are forever filled with the Spirit of God by grace through faith, what happens in their heart when they, are, when they realize that they have been adopted as beloved children of God, all by grace, all through faith? What happens in that heart? Or we could say, what happens to a group of people in whose hearts this happens? What do their lives together look like when they've believed this gospel and the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ fortifies their bones, goes deep into their hearts, and it expands out of their mouths to others? What does that look like? What do their lives together look like? It's questions like this that our text this morning answers. Here we are in Acts chapter 2. These are the first Christians. You can scan ahead in your text and see that that the, Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Peter steps up and preaches the first gospel sermon. 3,000 people get saved. And now we get this first glimpse, in verses 42 to 47, of what it means to be Christian, of what it looks like to be Christian. Not nominal Christians, not Christians in name only, not false converts, but, but true from the heart changed, regenerate, born again, these first Christians here in Acts 2 model and mirror for us what it is to be us together. You know, in this series, this Ecclesia series, we've seen many things about what it means to be us. We've seen our shared responsibilities before the Lord around baptism. 
We've seen our shared responsibilities around the Lord's table. We've seen our shared responsibilities around church discipline and elders and deacons and preaching and hearing preaching and being generous and being slaves of Christ. And we've seen the wonderful centrality of the gospel in it all. And this morning, our attention is focused on the on additional details of what it means to be us. What is it to live life together devoted to Christ? A name in this series that you've heard over and over again is to, to, to unleash the word of God against our independent, autonomous, privatized instincts as Western Americans. Because none of that is in the Bible. Privatized, autonomous, and independent. We are interdependent. We are the body of Christ. And so this morning we see what it is to be the body of Christ, what it is to, to, to live with and love one another and how we interact with each other, this text being both a model and mirror for us. And so if you're taking notes, the outline comes to us in four parts. Here they are. Point number one, a faithful church is devoted to gathering. A faithful church is devoted to gathering. We'll look at verse 42 and hop down to verse 46. Next, we will see that a faithful church is a praying church. Third, we will see that a faithful church is a fellowshipping church. And we're going to spend most of our time there in that third point. And then in uh, point number four, a faithful church is a flourishing church. And that's our aim all along in this series is to know God's word, to wisely apply it. Faithfulness is our responsibility by the Spirit. But flourishing and fruitfulness, that's God's responsibility in and through us. So let's look at this first point. A faithful church is devoted to gathering. Look at verse 42 and verse 46. And they, all these first Christians... Note these words, devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then if you skim down to verse 46, we we get a quick snapshot of what life was like together in Christ now. Day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So in this first point, we see a faithful church is devoted to gathering. In verse 46, we're given the pattern of life of these first Christians. Do you see it? They gathered daily, daily, every single day. They gathered daily as one large assembly. It was a a megachurch. It was 3,000 people gathering together in the only place that could hold them, and that was the temple. They gathered as one large assembly in the temple precincts where the apostles preached, preaching all of Christ from all of Scripture. And they very most likely sang songs together as an assembly and prayed prayers together. Most likely, the apostles themselves would have led in lengthy prayers, and the people would have um, attended to those prayers with a hearty amen. But then we also see, in verse 46, that not only was it by day in the temple, but we see that they were breaking bread in homes, presumably 
for dinner in the evenings, possibly lunch, possibly both. But we see the pattern of these Christians' lives together was day by day and evening by evening. Or large assembly and small assemblies. They gathered. You see, what happened to them was their cherishing of the gospel of Jesus Christ had a magnetic effect. It was magnetism. It drew them together, these people whose hearts had been changed by Jesus and there, there was no longer a need for sacrifices to be offered because one sacrifice was offered once and for all, Jesus Christ. Because their sins had been washed away by his blood, the good news of this message had a magnetic effect among these believers to draw them, bind them together for the word, for prayer, for fellowship, for meals. And this same mentality and reality courses through the veins of the rest of the Bible, down through church history, into this room at the very present. That what the gospel does is it does not release us into the wild as sheep doing what's right in our own eyes, but it gathers us together into sheep folds or pens called local churches, where we are magnetically drawn to other gospel people who relish and cherish King Jesus, our Father and the Spirit, our triune God. In other words, we see in Acts 2 faithful Christians regularly assemble into faithful churches. That's what Christians are. We collect together. In fact, the word church, ecclesia, means assembly. It means gathering in the New Testament. It means there's a face-to-faceness, an embodiedness of us being us. You know, I wonder to what degree the apostles, when they were writing this, if they could look forward to see us in 2022 and the rise of so-called online churches and digital campuses and more where people don't assemble physically, what their assessment of it would have been. Well, I, I think I know what their assessment would have been based on Scripture. And that is not a mark of healthiness for a Christian all things being equal, that when we ought to regularly gather, we should, all things being equal. There are circumstances and times when we can't gather, but to decisively decide or for a church to offer, say that we're going to have an online campus, is to go against everything the New Testament teaches about the embodied nature of an embodied Savior and embodied Christianity and what it means to be us together. You'll see more on that in the third point of what fellowship actually is defined by in the Bible. Again, I'm saying all things being equal. And what we see this church doing is gathering regularly. Verse 42 reveals their gatherings were intentional. Their gatherings were structured. Their gather, they were intentional and structured around the preached word of God, praying, fellowshipping, and meals. And, and that word, the Greek term behind devoted, is a beautiful word. We used to use it regarding marriage, and that's a good portrait of it. The Greek term behind devoted can mean to attach oneself to, to be faithful to someone, to be busily engaged in, to hold fast to. It can mean to perpetually stand ready in service. It's to devote. There's an exclusivity to devotion. 
And what we see that these Christians did with these brand new hearts, born again in Jesus, filled by the Spirit, they devoted themselves. And the, the grammar of the text is interesting because no one forced them to be devoted. There wasn't this external constraint to force them. Their devotion was from the inside out, not the outside in. It's what they wanted. It was their willing action, their attitude that flowed from within them. What they wanted most was to be devoted. And when the text says they devoted themselves, it's a present active participle. Which happily means, in essence, that when you looked at them, it's what they were always doing. You'd look at that group and you'd say, that is a devoted group of people right there. They devoted themselves. That's why I used that term magnetic earlier. They, they did it. They kept doing it. Their devotion was corporate in nature. It wasn't isolated. It wasn't private. We could simply say that they were faithful to church. They churched themselves. And faithful for what? Four things, as I mentioned, and two of which we've already covered in the series. They're faithful to the apostles' teaching. We've covered that through the preaching component in this. But it means that the physical assembly in the temple, they gathered to sit under the preaching of all of Christ from all of Scripture by the apostles. But they also gathered together in those smaller groups to discuss and apply to each other's lives what they heard the apostles teaching as they met house to house. And the second, we see that they were devoted to fellowship. We'll look at that in the third point. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, which was a meal together and likely involved the Lord's Supper, which we've looked at earlier in the series. And they were devoted to praying, which we'll now turn to in the second point. So a faithful church is not only a devoted church who physically assembles together. One of the intentional things that we are to be devoted to is praying. Again, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and here it is, the prayers. You know, one pastor, I think, has said it best. He simply says this, it only happens after prayer. And that short little statement, it only happens after prayer, that simple way of putting it shows the primacy of prayer in our lives individually and in our lives corporately. There is Nothing that should happen in our lives that has not first been given to God in prayer. Uh, a faithful practice, a helpful practice is that when you wake up in the morning before your feet hit the floor is to give all of yourself to all of Christ for all of your day and to submit to him to accomplish his good gospel purposes in you and through you and with you with others to throw yourself a funeral in the morning, to carry your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus for the day. It only happens after prayer. But the emphasis here in this text, I just want to highlight for us. Note the context. They were devoted to prayer together. This is not about a private prayer closet, your private devotional life. This is the corporate prayer of their prayers together. There, there would have been many lengthy Prayers, most likely, by the apostles when they gathered in the temple. By day, as I mentioned earlier, prayer where people would have silently agreed with someone praying on their behalf. They listened on, and then they yelled, Amen, at the end, which means, I agree. It means, so be it. 
putting your verbal stamp, that period at the end of the prayer. And I, and I want to pause here because we're thinking about us as a church family. This, dear church, is why we give a good piece of real estate to corporate prayer in our church services. One of the reasons why Jeff just stood up and prayed for about five minutes, which may seem like an eternity to some, which, by the way, did you know you thought last service was long or last week was long? Did you know that the Puritans, it was common for the pastor to pray for an hour and then preach for two hours? That was a normal church service. So the elders are deciding to get puritanical. But, but what I want you to see is that, that what we do when we do this and gather together, I hope you realize that everything that is said and every item here is intentionally accomplished and done because we are trying to, the best of uh, the Spirit's power in us, to apply wisely what the Word of God says to us together. That's why we pray long prayers. Um, prayer is more than just a fill-in for, for Isaac to change the capo in a song. Prayer is us being led by a person on our behalf of both our corporate needs, the needs in our community, and to the ends of the earth. So we're to pray prayers in a thoughtful, intentional, word-shaped, unhurried way saying amen together. And I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but you... I hope that you will in the future. What our service leads when they open our service by reading scripture, right? It's revelation, then response. God speaks to us in his word, then we respond. The text that they read then informs how they pray, how they lead us in prayer. Have you noticed that? And part of that is to catechize us of how to pray the Bible back to God because that pleases him. So we tried to be intentional for us in glorifying our good Father who's given us the gospel of his Son. But returning to Acts 2.42, their devotion to prayer was not just in the large assembly, so referring to this as the large assembly, but also it says that they were devoted to prayers, meaning or implying when they gathered to break bread together and have their meals. So there was also praying corporately, but in a way that they could participate and everyone could pray. So it's, it's a both and, not either or. There was the corporate assembly, there was the smaller assemblies, and to be sure, given what scripture teaches us, they also prayed in private. But the emphasis here is that they were a people devoted to prayer. So the admonition to us, dear church, is that when Jeff or any service lead or when I or anyone or when the worship leaders, when, when we are praying, we are praying for us and with us and shout your hearty amen at the end because that is us being led together. You know, God works through means and in his sovereignty, God has seen fit to accomplish his purposes through our prayers, the prayers of his saints, and so we're to be faithful in prayer, and part of our faithfulness is what we do here now, what we do in our home fellowships and men's ministry and women's ministry and beyond, and what we do alone. But a faithful feature, a central feature of a faithful church is that we pray together. And next, point number three, our longest point, 
A faithful church is a fellowshipping church. What's the name of this church? You guys know what this church is called? What do we call ourselves? This is a test. Do you know where you are right now? What's the name of this church? You guys are all in the right place, hopefully. This isn't Flag Bible. No, this is FCF. So the last Flagstaff Christian Fellowship. Have you ever paused to think about what that very common yet vague word means? So point number three, a faithful church is a fellowshipping church. So if you were out yesterday doing a good work of sandbagging for building walls, the potential monsoon floods to come, is that fellowship with strangers and unbelievers? Or if you were helping the Talbots or the Balls or uh, anyone else who lives in the neighborhood and you were sandbagging there or someone else, but we were with other Christians, is that fellowship? What is fellowship? A faithful church is a fellowshipping church. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. What does that mean? What does that mean? They were faithful to do it, whatever it means. They were faithful. They were devoted. It's what they wanted to do. It was, remember, the the magnetism. They were drawn together. They devoted themselves to fellowship. What does that mean? What does it actually look like? If, If you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is a favorite word to translate into the Greek, koinonia, and you've likely, rightly, heard it defined as partnership. Yes, it can mean that. And sharing, absolutely. Participation, 100%. Fellowship. Koinonia. What does it mean? It is the Bible word that depicts what our interpersonal relationships look like as a local church. Let me say that again. What does koinonia mean? Well, what it's doing is that word fellowship depicts what are it, it shows what our interpersonal relationships ought to look like as a local church. So when you hear the word fellowship, you're being alerted to the fact that, oh, this is how Jesus wants our relationships to function, to look like. Fellowship or koinonia tell us how faithful Christians congregated together live out our lives together. And, but again, what does it look like? Well, a great starting point to wrap our minds around what it means to be devoted to fellowship, because these are characteristics that each of us are to possess individually as we assemble corporately. A great starting point to think about what it means to be devoted to fellowship is to consider the one another's of Scripture. Uh, one another's is a is a, is a fun way of, of, of taking a phrase off the pages of the Bible, one another, because there's many of them where we're given admonitions and instructions through the New Testament of what our lives together with one another ought to look like. In fact, those of you who are going to be going through the Covenant Membership Seminar, you're going to get a book that has all the notes of the seminar in it, and in the back is a list of all the one another's laid out in the Bible of what our life together looks like. And so, for the sake of time, very quickly, we're going to look at five examples. In this third point, five examples that paint for us a picture 
of what faithful fellowship looks like. So is it just going and playing golf with your buddies or having a sewing circle or whatever? What, what is biblical fellowship? Five examples, number one. This first one is a matter of perspective of what it means for us to be devoted to fellowship. This is a perspective. This is Romans 12, verse 5. Romans 12, verse 5. Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, body parts, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and here it is, and individually members of one another. So what does fellowship mean? It begins with a proper biblical perspective of what happened to us when we were born again in Jesus. We are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. To say it differently, we belong to one another. To be committed to a local church, to be a member of a church, means that you are formally saying, I belong to you, and you belong to me, and we have mutual responsibility for our life together in Christ. When you recognize this perspective that we are individually members of one another, that's the foundation of fellowship because we recognize that we are interdependent upon one another, and that makes Jesus happy. That's how Jesus designed the Christian life to the work. So, so it begs a question. This is rhetorical. Don't answer out loud. But who in this church does Jesus, Jesus exempt you from needing? Who in this church is unnecessary in your Christian life? Now, you might know the right Bible answer to that. But there's a functional way that we can live where our functional answer is, there's actually quite a few people in this church I don't need in my life. But when Romans 12, 25 tells us that we're one body in Christ and individually have members of one another, it means that we need everyone in this body to help us know and follow Jesus. I am interdependent upon every single one of you to know and follow Jesus, vice versa, vice versa. So the question is, who in this church is exempt from needing you in their life? And again, I think you know the answer, no one. Romans 12, 5, we are members of one another. If, if we were to answer, yes, there are some people I don't need, and yes, there are some people who don't need me, if we said that or functionally live that way, it's as if the foot is saying to the hand, I have no need of you. Have you read that chapter before? 1 Corinthians 12, that we're not allowed to do that, we that I can't say to the foot, I don't need you, and more. So what we see is the foundation of fellowship. What these early Christians did in Acts 2, devoted to fellowship, was first a perspective, I belong to you, you belong to me. We have a mutual responsibility for one another, and that serves as the foundation for fellowship. And until you embrace your Christ-given interdependence, 
you will never enter into true fellowship in the church. We need each other. So then second, the second, pers- the second way, the second picture of what does fellowship look like in these one another's. Secondly, Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16, the Apostle Paul says, and again, tune your ears to hear the one another's. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all, it's plural, let the word of Christ dwell in you all richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in all of your hearts to God. And the reason I have cherry-picked this verse as a portrait of fellowship, is that once you build on the foundation of that mutual interdependence, we see here in Colossians 3.16 that our fellowship is first and foremost around the word of Christ. It's around the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you all richly, teaching, admonishing, singing, and more with thankfulness. And that's why we've said that the word of God is to reverberate among the church and the spirit of god uses his word that he inspired to build us up into the image of god namely christ so our fellowship is word-based relationships we have word-based relationships that bring the words of our king through our words to one another fellowship begins by being filled with the word of god that means that every single one of us not just the preacher, not just our pastor elders, every single Christian, if you're a Christian, we have the ministry of remembering and reminding and rehearsing all of Christ from all of Scripture to all of our lives. We need each other to remember the Bible, remind the Bible, and rehearse the Bible to each of us to encourage us, to build us up, to fortify us, to cause us to follow Christ together, to lift each other up when we're downtrodden and despondent or more. And also, did you notice the singing part of Colossians 3.16? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's first. And then you're teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then it says singing psalms. So the word is implanted first in our hearts. And then we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all kinds of songs. But the connection is this. Did you know that part of our being devoted to faithful fellowship is singing to one another? Colossians 3.16 certainly has the vertical dimension to God, our trying God and glorifying Him, but the emphasis in Colossians 3.16 is the horizontal spread of the Word of Christ through our singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. This, dear church, is why we give place to so much singing in our assembly. But more than that, did you notice how unbelievably, wonderfully, treasurably gospel-rich those words were that we sang in those first two songs? We're not singing anecdotes, and we're not singing little sound bites or Christianisms. We are singing the Word of God 
singing the book of Revelation in that second song. This, dear church, is why we sing so much together, because we are seeking to obey with joy the word of God in our assembly. But when you sing, close your eyes sometimes, but open your eyes most of the time to sing to those around you. Recognizing that our unbelieving friends who are among us are hearing the gospel and sound doctrine sang among us and through us to one another. And someone who doesn't know Jesus might just meet Jesus. And those of us who are, are weary and heavy laden and that yoke doesn't feel easy and light, the words of the songs build us up and strengthen us and more. That's why we sing. That's why singing is a command. It does so much for our souls. It does so much for the soul of our church. It does so much for us because it glorifies God as we remind and remember and rehearse the word of God together through song. Faithful fellowship happens with the word. It is word-based and includes singing. Third, the third aspect, a third way to think about what faithful fellowship looks like through the one and others is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Another one another. Another command to us in our shared life together. 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling without grumbling show hospitality to one another hospitality is not exclusively something we just show strangers or unbelieving friends and we ought to do that but here in first peter 4 9 peter is talking to the church and he's saying show hospitality to one another it means biblical fellowship includes simply having one another in our homes for word-based fellowship because we are interdependent members of one another it's it's not rocket science we have people come into our homes sit around the table eat a meal together laugh together cry together pray together maybe even sing a hymn together just be together and talk about the Lord and what he's doing in your life. Talk about the word and maybe something that you're wrestling through, trying to understand, or something that's just really invigorated your soul recently that you were reminded of or more. You just, it's, it's really simple having people into your homes. But in this unique case of 1 Peter 4, 9, it's the church showing hospitality to the church, to one another. And so we're to welcome one another into each other's homes and by extension, it means that we're to have a welcoming disposition toward one another. We are to be hospitable. We all should aim to excel in making other people feel at home with us. Hospitality. It's another foundation of faithful fellowship. And that's exactly what they were doing in Acts 2. They were in the temple by day, and then they gathered in their homes for fellowship. Word-based relationships. And next, fourth, fourth of five, Hebrews chapter 10. Join me here. We'll be here for a few moments. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Another of many options we can look at of what 
it actually looks like to uh, do fellowship in the Bible. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Listen to these two verses. The author writes, Let us consider how to stir up one another. So note those words. Just see the connections. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day, Christ's return, drawing near. So if you look at verse 24 there, part of faithful fellowship, part of what the church was likely doing there in Acts chapter 2, and certainly what we're admonished to do in here, here in Hebrews, is that you have a ministry of scheming. Have you ever thought about it that way? You can be a godly schemer. And here's what your schemes are. We are to scheme, to consider, we're to figure out, we're to plan, plot, and pursue, to poke and to prod ways to stir up one another to love and good works. So there is a connection in my life about how much the love of Christ overflows from me and the good works that I do. There's a connection between what flows out of my life and you stirring me up to love and good works and then all of us together. Again, we're supposed to plan ways, poke prod each other to more love, more good works in Jesus' name. What we're not supposed to do then as a church is idly sit by and just hope and pray without doing actions that people would just become more loving. I really wish he'd become more loving. No, I actually am an active ingredient, an instrument in God's hands to produce more love in others and more good works in others and all of us together. We are ingredients to help each other be more willing to put a towel around our waist and serve and roll up our sleeves to be generous and more. We need each other's help to do those things. That's part of fellowship. Part of fellowship is helping each other put into action the word of God and what it says. And do you see the flip side? This is verse 25. The connection in this sermon that is Hebrews in verse 25 the flip side is do you see what happens when we don't stir each other up there's a byproduct of not having a ministry of scheming of love and good works in each other's lives verse 25 tells us not neglecting to meet together as is the habit look at that word habit they have a 30-day habit they built right there in their lives not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some we each have the possibility in our lives, the ability to drift from fellowship in the church and no longer be devoted to it. See the first point. A faithful church is devoted to gathering. And here, Hebrews is speaking to that. We can neglect to meet with our church family to such a degree and so often that it becomes a habit. It is far easier to not get up and get together and easier to stay home or go do something that seems more interesting to us than church. 
we each have in ourselves the ability to drift from fellowship in the church and no longer be devoted to it, which means that we need the ministry of reminding of each other to help each other not neglect to meet together. Most of you sit in the same seats every week. Praise the Lord. Most of you know who sit around you in the same seats each week. Praise the Lord. And that mutual interdependence and that belonging to one another, the, the first point in third point three one in this message, means that part of your ministry is seeing who is consistently absent from normally where you sit or your home fellowship or more, and you go after them on an errand of grace to check in to see how they're doing. Maybe they're caring for an ailing parent. Maybe there's a work schedule change. And maybe there's just simply laziness and neglect and a habit of not meeting together has happened. And so we have that ministry. And if, and you know it, if there ever was a unique time when people have built a habit of neglecting to meet together, it is coming out of this COVID season. It is a... Um, pandemic of lack of church attendance across the board across the globe in many ways uh, many pastor buddies of mine both on the west coast and east coast and north and, and the south it's the same that there are many church members who in not assembling have built a habit to not assemble and simply don't come back and rather than disciplining themselves and remember part of self-control is having yourself do what you don't feel like doing. And when you don't feel like going to church, the fruit of self-control or self-discipline is going to church even so. Why? Because, remember the previous point, you are needed and you need others. And your walk with Christ suffers when you absent yourself from the assembly of the saints. And so this verse instructs us to discipline ourselves and rather than cultivating a habit of not meeting, this text indicates, it says at the end of verse 25, but encouraging one another, there it is, all the more as you see the day drawing near, right? The night is far spent, the day is at hand, it very much is at hand, and so we need to assemble all the more. There's an intensity to this verse. There's a trajectory of this passage, not to meet less, but to meet more and more. That's part of fellowship. We chase each other down when there's habits of neglecting to meet. And at the same time, we're the schemers who stir each other up to love and good works. And fifth and finally, another example of why we are Flagstaff Christian fellowship is Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. A reality of being a church with each of us in the middle of our own sanctification is that there will most certainly be, you should expect, causes where you're going to need to forgive other people in this church family. If you're looking for a sinless church, it's our brothers and sisters in heaven right now. There's, there's no such thing on earth. Which means then there will be many causes until Jesus brings you home to need to obey and do Ephesians 4.32. And the question is, will you respond the, G the way Jesus wants us to? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. 
kindness is to one another is a mark of faithful fellowship. Tenderheartedness for one another is a mark of faithful fellowship. But above all, without a heart posture of forgiveness, there is no kindness. Without forgiveness, there is no tenderheartedness. We have to have a heart posture of forgiving one another. And without forgiving one another, there is no faithful fellowship. Unforgiveness leads to bitterness. It leads to feuding. It leads to divisions and disunity in the church. Unforgiveness is a cause of people building a habit to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some and more. There is no fellowship without forgiveness, without releasing someone from the debt of their sin against you. There's a lot more to say regarding forgiveness, but the gospel comes to rescue our hearts that may be prone to holding on to grudges. Do you see the connection? We've seen this before. We saw it last week. We see it all the time. Every command in scripture is either preceded by or followed by a gospel appeal. We do these things because of what Jesus has done for us. His death on the cross for our sins, his life in our place, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension and session in heaven and more. We forgive because God in Christ has forgiven us. He has forgiven you. And if we worship and serve a forgiving God, he wants us to be forgiving children. And so we extend the forgiveness that Jesus gives us to others, and this keeps our fellowship faithful and flourishing. So much more can be said regarding this definition of fellowship. But we see that devoted to fellowship is grounded on accepting the biblical reality that we are members of one another, interdependent. We're to be full of the word and have word-saturated relationships reminding and remembering and rehearsing all of Christ from all of Scripture together. We're to welcome each other and teach others homes without grumbling. We're to gather and stir one another up to love and good works, and we are to be a forgiving people. All those and more contribute to being a faithful church when we put into practice those things that Scripture speaks of us to do. But finally, in closing, point number four, a faithful church is a flourishing church. Let me remind us of our full passage. Look again at Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. The accent note on this final point is the final verse, verse 47. But listen to this, receive this portrait of what the church looked like together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, verse 47, and note this, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Here's what I want you to see. You look in your Bible, 
And there's a connection. Verse 47 exists because verse 42 exists. In fact, verse 47 is there, and that's true because verses 42 to 46 was characteristic of the church. In other words, the argument here is a flourishing church is an evangelistic church, is a gospel-proclaiming church, is a gospel-demonstrating church, and therefore, what does the Lord do based on our life together? He adds to their number day by day those who are being saved. These Christians' devotion to the Lord was seen in their devotion to one another. They had glad and generous hearts. But the connection is when they prayed the prayers and gathered for the apostles' teaching and the meals, when they did all the sample of one another's that I mentioned, their faithfulness, that magnetic connection as gospel believers, their faithfulness was the platform for God's fruitfulness. Their faithfulness was the platform for God's fruitfulness. We cannot manufacture fruit. God does. And the fruit in this case was having favor with all people and the Lord adding to the number day by day those who were being saved. When they were devoted and faithful to gather, faithful to be devoted, faithful in their gladness, faithful in their generosity, their life together was the platform for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, their life together, the way their lives were changed, showed that the gospel was in fact sturdy and true. It was sturdy and true. That Jesus really is who he says he is, the Savior, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. He's the way, the truth, and the life as our youth director says, that Jesus really is better than all that life can give or death can take. The way they lived together showed that Jesus, not their possessions, was more important. That time together was more important than the time apart. That their word-based relationships was now the hallmark of their lives and not talking about other things primarily. Their life together showed the gospel was sturdy and true. And so they just got together, loved Jesus together by loving each other, and that was evangelistic. Because the gospel was going out all the time. But these onlookers who were with skeptical eyes watching this group of people, they heard the message, which sounded too good to be true. But then they saw that it was in fact true by, they, by seeing Jews and Gentiles and by seeing, well, later on, by seeing the way they lived their lives together, it was, in fact, evangelistic. It was simply what Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you're to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And love is not merely a sentiment. It's all the features of faithful fellowship we just looked at. Love is demonstrated chiefly through the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And so our love for one another, the self-sacrificing we do to give each other life, shows an unbelieving world that we're disciples of Jesus. 
And so in the case of Acts 2, gospel proclamation led to lives of gospel demonstration. Gospel proclamation led to lives that reflected the truths of the gospel. And people were saved and the church was strengthened. The message of the death of God the Son brought life to the dead, vibrancy to the church. And whether in this case they had favor or later persecution, the church flourished, meaning they fellowshiped and Jesus added to the number those who were being saved. We as the redeemed humanity, one new man in Christ, We are empowered to now live as the new humanity, as God always intended from the garden in the beginning. And we show the world, a bankrupt world, a confused world, an inside-out and upside-down world. We show the true way to live as humans, formed and informed by the gospel, by our lives together. The world takes away life, the gospel gives it. In church, In our life together, our devotion together to all those other things shows the gospel to be true to an unbelieving world. When the reputation of the church is fighting over finicky things and backbiting and gossip and slander, those are false accusations. Yes, there's churches like that, but not this church, not the other gospel churches in town. There's other good churches. And when when an unbelieving friend comes among us, they should experience and see a foretaste of heaven and what glory is like through our forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven us and and more. You know, if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, know him. There is salvation in no other name. There is nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can give to remove the feelings of guilt and shame that continue to nag and gnaw at your soul. But it's something that Jesus did for that. There's something Jesus has done because the nagging and gnawing at your soul of guilt and shame is a gift of God to know that you are wrong against him and you are under his condemnation, but he has provided a free way of escape through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he is Lord, that he rose from the grave, you will be saved. The Lord turns away nobody, so don't be turned away this morning. Be saved. You can say, Lord, I am yours. Save me. And then talk to someone you came with about giving your life to Christ. Church, let's pray. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we pray for your grace to flourish in and through us as a church family, to build and bless us through the singing of your word, through seeing your word soon on display through the Lord's Supper and more. Lord, have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's stand for the singing of the song, and then Pastor Andy will come up to lead us to the Lord's table.